The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads, and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The parables of Jesus never change. Over the years and generations, we gain new insights and sometimes a different perspective for something that our age and time and situation has given to us, but the parables remain the same. Their core points are always there. The example I can think of right off the top of my head, or at least when I was writing my manuscript, was the parable of the sower. Of course, we know it well, but certain things about the parable of the sower, even though the story is always the same, change. The weeds and the rocks that try and keep the fruit of the word from growing in people's lives, those are different in every generation. Many people here in the older generation never found the weeds in their life to be video games in the internet, or at least not when they were younger. That's something my generation has always grown up with. Those things and entertainment of that sort pulling us away from God's word and its truth. And the persecution of the rocks, well, that's different from time and place. Some people, it is real persecution. Their lives are in danger for being Christians. Other people, maybe in our own day, it's in time and place, it's more the persecution of words, ostracism for confessing Christianity. So you see the application and the angle can kind of change for how you explain it and understand it, but the core is always there, the parable of the sower is always about why the word doesn't have effect in the lives of some people. The core point is the same. And that's true for today's parable, too. Different understandings can be understood from this parable of the banquet, but the core point is the same. The truth is changeless. And the truth that we are going to look at today is a threefold one. There is only one king and one feast. And we should come to that feast and do our best to bring others, and when we are at that feast, we should be clothed in the garment of faith. In the first place, as far as there being only one king and one feast, well, I have this to say. There have always been competing kings and feasts to the one true one. 
since time began. There have always been people that have set themselves up as being God or at least in the place of God and set up gatherings and groups that would have us gather instead of with the family of God around his word and instituted sacraments. Today, of course, it is particularly bad because those of us that are a little younger are taught from the earliest days in school, whatever is true for you is true. Think of what you will and let that be true for you. And there is no sort of presentation apart from certain maths and sciences of there being an objective truth and reality in which we live. Apart from certain things, you just get to make it up as much as you want. I remember I knew a person in college where we were talking about my beliefs as a Lutheran, a new Lutheran at that time, willing to talk about it with anybody I could find. And she said, well, I think I believe in incarnation, reincarnation. When I die, I'm going to come back as a chicken or something. And I said, well, based off of what? She's like, I don't know. I just want to believe that. And so I do. And with a straight face, that is what she said. She chose her own truth, and I'm not sure how she's doing now, but, well, we'll see in a few decades. But many of these alternate worldviews, these alternate feasts and masters of the feast, some of them are kind of silly like that. You're not going to find too many people in Watsika or anywhere else who believe in reincarnation, or at least on this continent. But other things are more popular. They are far more popular worldviews, things in which people hang their hats on over and against the God of the Bible and his revealed will and word. Many people go along with them, and many people follow after it. I guess the example I think of that comes to mind most readily is the new worldview of wokeism, where you've got to be woke to certain groups being special and privileged over and against others, and now it's time for people to get their comeuppance, and people turn away from the righteousness of God and the Bible and replace it with the righteousness that they hear, well, on NPR and places like that. And it is a popular thing for young people to think and speak in these terms this day, but popularity doesn't matter. You might remember there was an Elvis Presley album titled 50 Million Elvis Fans Can't Be Wrong. Well, the fact of the matter is they can be wrong. Nothing against Elvis or any other pop star like that, but numbers don't mean truth. Get a bunch of people to agree that something is the way it is and ought to be, that doesn't make it so. And besides that, what good is something, no matter how popular it is if it draws us away from what is true, what is real, what is righteous and good before God. This parable, we know the who's who already. We don't have to have a commentary or a pastor explain to us who represents what. Working backwards, when the master says he's going to destroy the city and burn it of those that rejected him, that is God destroying Jerusalem several decades after our Lord's ascension, punishing those people for murdering his son. Well, the son, obviously, that the wedding feast is for, is Jesus Christ. The people that rejected the first invitation are the Jews. Those out on the highways are the Gentiles. And naturally, the feast itself is the church. And the master is God. That is who it is. That is what the master is, God, and the feast, the church, and none other. And moreover, there is this to say. There's not another feast coming along. You all know, especially during the spring and summer when people are having weddings, that you know, sometimes your schedule just doesn't allow for you to go. You can go on to another one. You can go to another party if you miss one. You get several invitations to New Year's Eve. You say no to some, yes to another. There are options. 
But with the parable that Jesus is talking about and what it represents, God, Christ, his kingdom, and this church, his church, there's not an alternative. There's not a plan B. The people that miss out, the people that don't go, can't say, well, we're not there. We're just going to throw an alternative party and gather together and have our own thing. But many, of course, speak this way. I remember so many people in college, you know, you talk about Christianity in that time and certainly beyond. Maybe some of you have heard things like this. They say, well, you talk about Jesus Christ and salvation being exclusively in him and faith in him and going to heaven or hell. Well, I don't know about that. Most of my friends aren't Christians and I'd rather go to hell and be with them. Hell sounds like a pretty good time, like they're partying down there and that sounds more fun than going to heaven. It's sort of a silly thing if you think about it. If you know anything about God's word and believe it, it's a very dangerous thought. But yet people have such thoughts. If I'm not part of the real feast, I'm going to make my own or make the best out of a bad situation. But the truth is there is only the one master, the one son, the one wedding feast, the one church and salvation only in that. that. And Jesus even ends the parable today saying, if you're not in it, there is only weeping, darkness, and gnashing of teeth. And so all the more reason, which brings us to our second point, all the more reason why we should come. We should be where the master says, come and join me in this feast, and we should celebrate the appearing of the Christ and what he has done for us. And not just come ourselves, but do our best to bring everybody else that we possibly can. This would have been a good Mission Sunday sermon. But really, every Sunday is Mission Sunday, if you think about it, for what we believe and confess. Every Sunday is a day that is about the good news of Jesus Christ, believing it ourselves and sharing it with others. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day, we know, had hang-ups. They believed the Messiah was going to come, but they couldn't just get over that hump that he was also going to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so they were hostile to the messengers, the prophets of the Old Testament that told them to repent. And they even killed, or through Herod and his sermon, John the Baptist's sermon, they killed John the Baptist. And so the Jews were rejected, those that rejected the Messiah, cut out of the promise. Their invitations revoked, and the master says, go out into the highways and gather everybody else in. And what do we see in the parable? But the highway people, the Gentiles, us, come in in droves. They're happy to have this invitation. Now think about it even if you think about this detail. If you're, on a, if you're on a country road somewhere, you can be redirected. You're going somewhere local. It's no big deal. But if you're out on I-57, heading, let's be honest, 80 miles an hour, one direction or the other, and someone comes out and gives you an invitation, you're already going somewhere else to then stop that trip and go off to the side of this invitation for someone you've never heard of is kind of a big deal. Okay, and so those people did that in the parable and we ought to as well. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? What is this? It's a room full of Christians. Most of us, Christians for our whole lives. We grew up inside of the feast as it were. If you can think of a baby being born at a wedding reception that just never ends. That's what's going on for us, and I understand that. But I guess the warning for us would be, having been in the feast now, and right now in your whole life, don't step outside of it. Don't see an open door and wonder what's going on outside. I want to go out there for a little while and get some fresh air or whatever the purpose is. Don't leave 
the safety of the ark, which is the Holy Christian Church. But moreover, on top of that, as the aside, let us not keep the invitation to ourselves. We have grown up in this. We are a part of it now, but let's not just sort of leave it in our own mind and heart. Sunday morning, Saturday night, something we do for ourselves as Christians, but there's plenty of people we know that don't or won't. Well, let's not just let one no or two no's or 17 no's from them as an invitation to church deter us from still trying to bring them in, still telling them about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ for our not temporal glory, but eternal glory. You see, the invitation's an open invitation in the parable. If you've ever planned a reception of some sort, whether it be an alumni banquet or a wedding reception, you know you have to count, right? I remember doing this six years ago when we were planning our wedding, and you had to like say, okay, 50% of the guests are yours, 50% are mine, this is how many seats we have, this is how many we can do, blah, 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 blah. And you know that you can't send out too many because there's not gonna be enough food and seats for everybody if you do that. That's not how this feast is. It's an unlimited invitation. Anybody that can come, can come, and God wants them there. And so we ought to share it with as many people as possible. And so having done this, having come and brought others, having believed in and confessed the one true king and his feast, let us in the third place dress for the occasion. Oriental feasts, feasts at this time and place in which our Lord was speaking were a very, very big deal. It wasn't just a small group of you and your friends at the Legion Hall when everybody knows everybody else or is related to everybody else and it's kind of Iroquois County informal. No, these are like meetings of clans and people coming together and there was a lot built up about it and there was honor and dishonor connected with that. We kind of dress down in our generation, don't we? And that's completely fine. That's a sort of a cultural thing which could be whatever. You look at the old pictures of Calvary in the old uh, books, like the directory books that I looked at when I got here. There's a photographer standing here, congregation full of people, ladies in dresses, some of them hats, and men in jackets and ties. That's kind of gone away and whatever. But that's not what we're talking about. I guess. I would say that even though we can dress down for church or a wedding reception and not wear those things, we all know that it's still kind of an insult to somebody if you show up to somebody's wedding without a shirt on, if you're a man, or if you want to walk around barefoot or something like that. There are degrees still of honor and dishonor and insults that can be had. So we do understand the principle. So the Lord, when we come to his feast, wants us to be clothed. He wants us to be clothed with the right garments. And he's not just talking, of course, about Sunday best. That's a misappropriation to use this to talk about how we ought to go back to the way things were 40 years ago. No. He wants us to come and be clothed with the garment of faith. Faith, repentant faith, which says, I am a sinner, but you are righteous. I am unholy, but you are holy. And you, God, I believe you have clothed me with your righteousness, the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. That is what we must be garmented in. So let us not play the hypocrite, is the admonition our Lord gives us here at the end of the parable. Let us not be in the feast, but not believing anything that's going on in the feast, not believing its application and its real value to us, but rather let our confession be not only with our lips, but in our hearts as well. Dear friends, we are in the right place. 
when we come to church, when we gather together as the body of Christ and believers, we are exactly where we should be for this life and for the next. God is king in heaven. There is none beside him. His son is the one through whom we worship that God and have fellowship with him. So let us always be there with him. Let us do our best to arrange our lives around the worship of him, not just on the weekends when we have corporate worship, but every day. Let us not think of stepping foot out of our house without praising him and honoring the son who was slain for our salvation. Let us believe it ourselves. Let us invite others. And let us live all of our days in the glory and hope that that promise and that Savior affords to us. To him be all glory, honor, and praise now and forever. Amen.